Well, I'm going to continue really where I left off before. We had, uh, we're going through the book of Exodus, and we had wrapped up the Ten Commandments. We've finished with chapter 20, and we are now in chapter 21 of Exodus. And, and I've got to tell you that this is a section that a lot of people skip over or just kind of ignore because it's not that easy of a passage to wrap our heads around. But uh, if you will walk with me through it today, I think we'll come away with a better understanding of what the Lord is teaching us through this. Again, this is Exodus chapter 21, and I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 11. Exodus chapter 21. These are the ordinances that you must set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and the children belong to her master, and the man must leave alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I do not want to leave as a free man, his master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the door or doorpost. His master must pierce his ear with an awl, and he will serve his master for life. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she is not to leave as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing to her master, who chose her for himself, then he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners, because he has acted treacherously toward her. Or if he chooses her for his son, he must deal with her according to the customary treatment of daughters. If he takes an additional wife, he must not reduce the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she may leave free of charge without any exchange of money. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we believe and we know because your word tells us that all scripture is profitable for training and teaching to train us in righteousness. So we pray this morning that you would teach us from your word to help us understand these truths in the Old Testament that apply even to us today and point us to Christ. Amen. My version says that if he has lost his mind and takes an additional wife, then... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now, later, later on in Exodus, in, in chapter 24, you'll find out that this, is, this section is called the Book of the Covenant. And so I'll uh, refer to it as this every now and then. But it, it spans, the Book of the Covenant spans chapters 21 to 23. And it contains a long list of rules for everyday life in Israel. And you see, God gave Israel the Ten Commandments that we studied in chapter 20. 
and he showed them how to apply his law uh, in various life situations, really in chapters 21 to 23. Now, we've got to remember, too, that the book of the covenant was revealed by God just as the Ten Commandments. There are regulations here that are as fully authoritative to Israel as were the Ten Commandments. But there are some things that we've got to keep in mind that make them different. For one thing, the Ten Commandments, written by the finger or the hand of God, these uh, were written by the pen of Moses, not in stone, but on parchment. And the implication is that these do not have the same binding force, the same eternal force, uh, as the Ten Commandments. And while the Book of the Covenant contains principles that we can apply today, the specific civil pronouncements and the penalties were for the nation of Israel and are really no longer binding to on church or state for us. But we can learn a lot from it. How can we apply it to our specific uh, social context today? Now there may be maybe several questions that come to mind as you read over the passage this morning. You know, it, it seems like how can we study Old Testament slavery and apply that to our lives today? I think as people read this passage, they come to a lot of wrong conclusions. You know, some have argued that God actually condoned or agreed with slavery. And they would use this passage to say that God found nothing wrong with slavery. And then non-Christians will read this and say, who could worship a God like this? Some Christians are embarrassed over these words in the Old Testament. There's even some pastors that have concluded that the Old Testament is outdated and irrelevant for Christian life today. I mean, one pastor has published a book where he says we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And here's one thing that he says. Every pagan god was a human rights violator, and so was the Old Testament god, the god of the Old Testament, because he merely played by the rules of the day. Well, I'm here to argue that if you can't trust the God of the Old Testament, then you can't truly trust the God of the New Testament. If you can't trust the God of the Old Covenant, you can't trust the God of the New Covenant. You know, there is more here than meets the eye if we take the time to actually study God's Word in its original context. And what we're going to find is that this passage actually displays the compassion of God. And it serves as one of the most fundamental pictures in all of Bible of God's saving plan for sinners like you and I. And the first thing I've got to do is kind of lay out the cultural context here if we're going to understand this. You know, we have a difficult time talking about or thinking about slavery because of the history of slavery in the United States. And I'll admit we should be 
uncomfortable. Really, I think we should be appalled at the history of slavery in our country. People were forcibly taken, transported, or even raised against their will to be slaves, and this was wicked. And I think we can all agree that slavery as practiced in this country is a stain, a blight on our nation's history. And we've got to admit, too, that there are lingering effects even today that can't be ignored. But nevertheless, this kind of slavery is not what's being talked about in Exodus 21. The kind of slavery that we find in Exodus 21 is different from what was referred to as the transatlantic slave trade. In fact, if you looked on down to Exodus 21 verse 16, you would see that God's law forbids the stealing of men and selling them into slavery. It was punishable by death. Whosoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. So people that tried to use the Bible to defend slavery were dead wrong. In fact, in 1 Timothy, this command against kidnapping is included in the list of actions that violate the law of God. So I would argue that in Scripture, in the Bible, there is zero tolerance for the type of slavery that took place in American history, the type of slavery, really, not just American history, but the the whole transatlantic slave trade. But with that in mind, we need to understand what Exodus 21 is talking about. That form of slavery is completely different. It's different from the Egyptian slavery that the Israelites experienced under Pharaoh. It's different from slavery that is even experienced in other parts of the world today. In fact, uh, we've got to think for a minute. Uh, there's There's a great deal of regulations that seem offensive to us at first. But we've got to understand what was going on in that culture. There was economic destitution. People could not make a living. And this would affect the lives of men and women in the ancient world. And this is where we've got to think very carefully. There was no centralized government. There was no health care. There was no way to take care of your family if you lost your job. You might not be able to afford to feed your family. And they didn't have small families with just one child. They usually had a large family. There was no bank, really, to give you a loan. And so we find God's regulations to secure livelihood in the face of destitution, in the face of poverty. Now, understand that this type of slavery, this servitude, was voluntary for the Israelites. People hired themselves into the service of others because they were poor, because they recognized 
that the best way to meet their needs while paying off a debt was to be someone's servant. And servant is probably a better understanding or a proper word for it. Because they weren't because the word slave is so tainted in our cultural terms, it's better to think of it as a as a servant. They were more like apprentices, hired hands, indentured laborers. They lived in the master's house where they worked hard in exchange for room, board, and an honest wage. And remember, this was an agrarian society, a farming society. You couldn't just walk down and get a job as a greeter at Walmart in this uh, day and age. But you know, we have a tendency, I think, to be chronologically snobbish. We tend to look back in time and think, oh, how far advanced we are, and we've got it all figured out. And if we could just go back to that day, we would have done it differently. But I would argue that no, we wouldn't have. So, now you understand the type of slavery that's talked about in Exodus 21. And again, I want you to see that these laws were for the compassion of God, not the lack of it. Something else to think about is that the book of the covenant starts by addressing slavery, which in fact is the way the Ten Commandments or the introduction to the Ten Commandments began. Before God gave His people the law, He reminded them that He had brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And I think it's very appropriate for God to begin this book of the covenant with the same topic. The Israelites were former slaves who were now free. And it would be unthinkable for them to treat one another the way that Pharaoh had treated them. And so God begins this book of the covenant by regulating the relationship between masters and servants. It's compassion, really, if you think about it. We start with verse 2. Verse 2 says, but roughly... There is no permanent slavery in Israel. Slaves would get their freedom in the seventh year. They were given a chance to start over. This law prevented them from remaining in as a slave, as a servant, for their entire lives. And instructions over in Deuteronomy tell us that they were to be set free and they were not to be sent away empty-handed. The master who set them free was required to give them everything they needed to make a start in a new life. It says this, If your fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, you must set him free in the seventh year. And when you set him free, do not send him away empty-handed. Give generously to him from your flock from your threshing floor and your wine press. You are to give him whatever the Lord your God has blessed you with. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I'm giving you this command today. And so this demonstrates, this proves that the biblical form of servant slavery had a constructive purpose to it. 
it was for the benefit of the servant as well as the master. And we've got to admit that this is not our way of thinking about slavery, is it? Ordinarily, it was just for the master's advantage alone. He gets work done at the slave's expense. But the purpose of slavery in Israel was to train men and women to be productive members of society. Remember, the reason that they had become servants or slaves in the first place was because they were in debt, sometimes through their own negligence, sometimes to make restitution for a theft that they could not pay back. But rather than be condemned to a life a life of poverty, they had a chance to improve their situation. So slavery was God's way of training irresponsible men to manage their own affairs and then be reintroduced into society. You know, they learned how to work within the context of a family in preparation for their ultimate freedom. Thus, this form of servitude had a redemptive purpose. The goal was not bondage, but responsible independence. So the Hebrew servant was bound for freedom. Now we think about the manservant that's discussed in verses 3 and 4. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears sons or daughters, the wife and children belong to her master and the man must leave alone. So here are instructions about dealing with a married or unmarried manservant. And now, it's pretty easy to understand the, the first part of it. You know, if a former slave comes in as a single man after that seventh year, his situation is the same. He's let go as a single man. If he comes in as a married man after the se- uh, you know in the seventh year, he's let go, and it's the same as when he came in. He should stay married. But if we look at verse four, things seem to get a little more complicated when the man marries another slave while in the master's care. Well now, think about it. This woman he marries was already or originally in the master's care. So the master had responsibility to care for this woman. He had to give her, Scripture tells us, to the man, to the manservant. And so the master had to make sure he was giving that maidservant to someone who would truly care for her. This is the kind of heart that the master was supposed to have. And verse 4 tells us when the man was set free that the wife and children would remain with the master. Now, our modern way of thinking would say, well, that's typical. It's about putting the woman down. But we need to think through the culture of this day and understand what God is doing here and how this served to protect the woman and children because they were the responsibility of the master. Think, As I said, the woman had, was already under the care of the master. Therefore, the male slave, the manservant, when he was released, his prior circumstances, we already know, had been so dire 
that he had to become a slave in the first place. And so the master needed evidence that the woman and children would be cared for properly. The master had a responsibility to take care of the woman and children. And so if the husband now, the manservant who had been set free, if he had not learned his lesson, what's going to happen? He's going to come go, go out into society, become impoverished again, become destitute again. And if the wife and children had went with him, now they would be in that same situation. So to prevent this from happening, the wife and children would remain in the master's household until the husband could demonstrate that he could take responsibility in a God-honoring way. Leviticus 25 tells us what can happen. It allowed for this man to pay a price to redeem his wife and children. So if he could go out from being a slave in the seventh year, start being a productive member of society, remember he's been given uh, enough goods and money to, to go out on his own and start. So if he can be a uh, use that to generate income, now he, can, he has proven his ability, he can turn around and pay a price to redeem his wife and children. This would prove that the man has both the desire and ability to provide for his family. So you see, the master was making sure that the wife and children did not go out into this culture if the, if the man was not desiring to care for them or able to provide for them. So it was protection for the woman and the children. Now what about maidservants? In verses 7 through 11, it tells how to deal with a maidservant. And as we read through this, we probably got some questions as to why were women maidservants treated differently than men? Why did God allow his people to sell daughters into slavery in the first place. It really doesn't seem right at first, does it? Again, we need to understand the culture. While we don't really have all the details, we need to keep in mind that these regulations had a benevolent purpose. The commands preserved dignity in human life. It was for the protection of women. The man who sold his daughter to be a maidservant was not trying to get rid of her. It was to improve her prospects in life. And what this what these verses describe in this culture is really a form of an arranged marriage. Now, however strange that may sound to our American ears has been common in many parts of the world for a lot of human history. A poor man would send his daughter to a wealthy man in hopes that she would become a permanent member of his household. She would enter into a conditional form of servitude, hoping that eventually she might marry 
the master's son. And so a father would look not only for a man who was wealthy, but a man who treated his servants well. So it would be a good situation for his daughter. And now the text there in verse 7 says, when a man does this. So God is not saying that, that you're to do this. God is just saying that when this happens in your culture, here's the regulation to protect the woman. In no other culture did women have rights of protection such as this. And there's a number of scenarios given. She was not to be sent out as the male slaves because in the ancient world, a woman who did not belong to a household was in danger. It wasn't safe for her to go free. In order to flourish, she had to be, she needed to live within the community of a family. And so by not allowing maidservants to go free, God was not seeking to restrict them, but to protect them. He knew that men would try to take advantage of servant girls. And so God's law afforded maidservants specific protections. The first protection concerned when the master decided he didn't need her service at all. And for whatever reason, he might be displeased with her. He wasn't allowed to treat her any way he pleased. He was obligated to let her return to her own family. The second situation involved the master who was pleased with his maidservant. So pleased, in fact, that he wanted her to marry his son. In this case, it says if he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. So at this point, it appears that the maidservant was engaged and not yet married, but she was already to be welcomed as a full member of the family, treated with all the privileges of a daughter, not a maidservant. And then as a married woman, she would have the full rights of a free citizen. And the third scenario, as we walk on through this, is as Greg had already mentioned, when he takes an additional wife, uh, which was common in that culture. He could not treat the former maidservant with any less dignity than she had been treated with before. He's to feed her, clothe her, still have intimacy with her. Otherwise, he has broken his covenant with her. And she's to be let go, free without even a redemption price being paid. And you see, this prevented masters from taking advantage of their maidservants. And notice in all of this, the welfare and the dignity were the concern. And they, the woman was protected and her future provided for. Now, even though we're not bound to follow the Old Testament laws today, they do teach us some practical principles that we can apply at home, at work, in our lives. And I think most important, they provide wonderful pictures of our salvation in Christ. The book of the covenant here has shown how a servant living with a bad master could be redeemed and go back home. 
It showed how a slave without any prospects could gain his or her freedom. You know, a male slave could work and gain his freedom. A female slave could marry the master's son. And these narratives ought to sound familiar to us. You can see the the hints or the flashes of the gospel in this. We were born as slaves to sin. We've been oppressed by a cruel master, the devil. But when Christ was crucified, He paid the price to redeem us. And now we are free to go back home. To tell the story a different way, we were all alone living without hope. But when we came to God, He engaged us to His one and only Son. You see, the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ, and we as the bride are married to the Master's Son. Just two examples of how the laws of Moses point us to the salvation of Christ. But I think the most beautiful picture comes from the law's special provision for a slave who wanted to enter into permanent service with his master. God said here, if a slave declares, I love my master, my wife and my children, and I do not want to leave as a free man, his master is to bring him before the judges and bring him to the door or doorpost. His master must pierce his ear with an awl and he will serve his master for life. It must have been a remarkable occasion. After six years of labor, a slave decided that rather than going free, he wanted to continue to serve his master. You know, some masters might take advantage of this law by forcing their slaves to keep working. And in order to prevent this, there had to be a public ceremony. First, the slave went before the elders of the community and made a formal declaration of his desire to keep serving. You know, the Bible literally says the slave must be taken before God, before God's representatives. In a day we would say that, that the slave would, would, the declaration would be made before God and these witnesses. And if the, the slave would declare, I love my master. And once the slave had made this public declaration, everyone went to the doorpost of the master's house where the master, where the slave would lean up against it. The master would take a sharp pointy thing and all would jab it through the slave's ear. And this was symbolic. The ear, in a one sense, is the most important part of the slave's body. Why? He has to hear before he can obey. By having his ear pierced, the slave was making a public commitment to do what his master said. The doorpost was also symbolic. Not only did it serve as the place to drive the all through, but it showed that the servant is now attached to the master's household. The doorpost was marked with blood of a covenant between a master and a slave. 
and this form of servitude was totally voluntary. Anyone who saw the servant's pierced ear now would know that he has chosen to serve. But why? Why would anybody make this choice? What could persuade a man to renounce his freedom and remain bound to his master? The answer is love. The slave who had his ear pierced swore an oath of allegiance. I love my master. His servitude was not some form of tyranny, but a voluntary act of love. And this raises a question, though. What kind of a master would deserve such love? The master who deserved this love must have been a good master. He took care of all of his servants' needs. He was a kind master, one who treated his servant like a friend, a generous master, one who had his servant's best interests at heart, a loving master. And it was natural for his servant to love him in return. And rather than looking for freedom somewhere else, the servant had found it in his master's house. And this is the only way for us to find true freedom. Not by serving ourselves, but by choosing to become servants of God. I pursue the way of your commands, wrote the psalmist. For you broaden my understanding. We are loved best by the master of all. He takes care of all our needs. He does not treat us like, like slaves, but like friends. He has our best interests at heart. And if this is all true, why would we want to serve somebody else but wait wait there's more I sound like an infomercial here we serve a master who made himself a slave taken on the very nature of a servant this is the story of our salvation that the son of God did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus always chose to do His Father's will. We could even say that He is the servant who declared, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free. Out of His great love for His Father, out of His great love for His bride, the sons and daughters, Jesus bound Himself to God's will even when it meant suffering and dying for our sins. The greatest service of all was His death on the cross for us. So if a servant loves a master who takes care of him and treats him like a friend, imagine what that servant would do for the master who saved him. And at the cost of even his own life, we are loved by such a master. Why would we want to serve anyone else? Lest of all ourselves. What we ought to do. 
is give ourselves entirely to His service. We are called to make a public declaration of our allegiance to Christ. We are called to listen to His Word and obey His voice. We ought to be saying, I love my Master and I want my heart to be bound to Him forever. You see, service to such a gracious Master is not bondage, but freedom. Ambrose had something, uh, uh, an ancient church father. He said, the man is truly free who is entirely God's. The man who is truly free is entirely God's. So I would say that at least in a spiritual sense we're to go up to the doorpost of the house of God lay our ears up against it and say I'm only going to listen to your word God and let him pierce our ear. God is not saying for us to do whatever we want. He is He's saving us so that we will live our lives as fully devoted servants of the Lord. He is saving us so that we will see that living under His rule, living with Him being our Master, well, there is nothing greater. We're called to surrender ourselves to Him. Again, to put our ear up against the doorpost of His house and let Him pierce our ear in effect saying, God, I'm yours. I will listen to only you. Let's pray. Lord, Father, thank you for your word. For every bit of it instructs us and teaches us it instructs us and teaches us in the knowledge of salvation and who Christ is and we thank you that we can go to your word without fear or embarrassment because you are a great God and even when you are interacting with a fallen world you demonstrate to us how you save us and redeem us from it Father, this world will leave us destitute. This world, Father, we were born into this world as spiritual slaves. But by the grace of God, we can come to Christ and be redeemed. Not to live any way that we want, Father, but to live as we should to live under the rule of a perfect, good, and holy Master. Father, may this message pierce our hearts. And may we respond by allowing you to pierce our ears. We give you praise, Father, and exalt your holy name. Amen.